This is the second sermon in a series of about seven sermons that we will be doing this summer on the letter to the, to the Galatian churches. The, uh, the Galatian churches, as with many of the, of the churches in the New Testament, was going through conflict, it was going through, through uh, division, uh, it was a time of anxiety and crisis in those churches, and Paul is addressing those issues. It seemed appropriate to do that because our denomination, and by extension then our church, is also going through uh, a time of, of crisis and division and, um, and anxiety about our future. Generally, the issue with the churches in Galatia are uh, who's in and who's out, why are they in or why are they out? And how does one behave when one's in? Last week, I talked about um, these come-to-Jesus moments uh, that Paul had with Jesus. Uh, Paul had his come-to-Jesus moment that shaped his life and throughout his ministry then, he is asking and calling on the church to have these come-to-Jesus moments uh, of truth and reality uh, on shaping its life and getting on the right, right path. What, what Paul is doing here is, is appealing to tradition. The, the religious leaders are calling him on the carpet, actually kind of having a come-to-Jesus meeting with Paul, saying, you're off track. And Paul says, no, you're off track. Uh, it's, it's the tradition uh, that I'm appealing to, and I am solidly within our tradition. You know, he says to King Agrippa, King Agrippa, you understand Moses and the prophets. You understand, don't you? that I am in the tradition of Moses and the prophets. I'm not drunk, I'm not nuts, I'm not off track. I am firmly within our tradition. So this is an argument about, about tradition today. Who's got tradition? There's a difference between tradition and traditionalism. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living the dead faith of the living. Tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Um, it's not life-producing. It's about rules and regulations. It's clearly about staying inside the box. It's an attitude that the church exists for itself. Uh, that it only serves itself, that it's not aware of what's going on outside. It's very concerned about its survival. In a sense, one could argue that the church worships itself. It tends to minimize the maximum and maximize the minimum. Um, when um, our kids were little, we visited a church this was uh, the day after, on a Saturday night, we had seen 
the movie The Sixth Sense. Do you remember The Sixth Sense, that movie? Um, and we're sitting there in this church, visiting this church, and my son leaned over to me. He must have been in the fifth grade. He leaned over to me and said, Dad, I see dead people. <laughs> you know, that's, that's traditionalism. It's, it's dead. It's not life-giving. When I was a superintendent in the Dayton area, there was a church on the east side of Dayton. It was a very, very big building. And the, the congregation was down to about 15 to 20 people that would meet in the chapel. Big church. None of the rest of the church was used. They met in the chapel. And I'd have to say that the church was very much into, we've always done it this way. It was very much into a close-knit group that really didn't let anybody else in. They had their way of operating. They had their rules, their traditions, their boundaries. Surrounding that that big church building with a very small congregation was a large, large Latino community. And uh, it was a non-denominational church, and I had developed a friendship with their minister, and this church was worshiping about 200 people, and they were meeting, they were just crammed into the basement of a of a, of a restaurant, and they really needed more space, and they asked me if, if there was any more space that the Methodist church could provide them, and I thought of this large church in their neighborhood, and I noticed that on their cornerstone, the cornerstone was written in German, so I, I did some research on the church and on the neighborhood, and that neighborhood of Dayton was, was, was German, a hundred years before that, it was all German settlers. And, um, and the church was founded as a German, but over the years, the Germans had moved away and had learned English if they stayed, and so there was no need for a German church anymore, and that church had declined and was a small number of people. But they decided, the, the, the Germans there, decided, let's give our church to the English-speaking neighbors, because they need a church. So I went to this church on the east side, and I said, are you aware of your history? Do you know what your tradition is? And they said, yeah, we were founded as a German church. And I said, are you aware that the German church died out, and they gave this building to the English speakers, your parents and grandparents? I'm asking you to do the same thing. I'm asking you to honor the tradition of your parents and grandparents who gave this church to their neighbors. And I would like you to give your church to the Latino congregation. I was asking them to remember their tradition and the living faith of their dead ancestors. We will hear this week on 4th of July about the spirit of John and Abigail Adams, of George and Martha Washington. We will hear about the spirit, the living faith of those who began this country. And there will be calls 
for us to have their living spirit. Even though they're dead, we know that their spirit lives on. It crosses generations. It crosses centuries. You know, the living faith of the dead is unconquerable. It's irresistible. Susan and I this weekend have been watching a documentary on the beginning of the women's movement with Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony. And they began, you know, knowing that they would probably not see the fruits of what they began. But they knew it would be for the next generation, and indeed it was, you know, that women would get the vote. But their spirit, the living faith, lived long after those two women died. Tradition and the living faith of the dead is life-giving. Paul refers to the, the, the prophets, to, the, to Moses, as the living faith that he has inherited and that he is continuing. This living faith of the dead sees the church not as an end, but a means to an end. It sees it uh, not to worship it, but to spread God's Spirit to others. Yeah. It's life-giving and it's courageous because it moves beyond the rules and the regulations and the boundaries. Now, we United Methodists have a lot of Wesleyan traditions on which we can draw. The common one is John Wesley's heart being strangely warmed, where we're a, where we're a, 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 a denomination of heart and religious experience. I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about where almost a full year after Wesley's heart was strangely warmed, he made a decision, as he says in his journal, to become more vile. After his heart was strangely warmed, his, warmed, his heart, um, he still had doubts. He was still troubled. He still had anxiety about his faith and his relationship with God. And this went on for a year. At one point, he says, I don't, I don't think I'm even Christian. Then he got this call from George Whitfield, the, the uh, Presbyterian preacher, to, to preach out in the fields, which traditionalism said was wrong. Preaching could only take place in the church. Baptisms could only take place in the church. Sacraments only administered in the church. And Wesley said, you know, I would think it would be a sin to save a soul outside the church. But then he says in his journal, I decided to become more vile. Now, I don't the word might mean the same then as it does now. 
clearly for him it probably meant committing a sin because he was going to preach out in the fields which would be considered a sin and he would be a sinner it could also mean he had decided to go beyond the rules and the regulations and the boundaries that God's love needed to break out of the boundaries he called that becoming more vile at one point the when he was preaching in Bristol to crowds of 20,000 Bishop Butler of Bristol communicated with him that he needed to stop that was traditionalism saying stop don't take God's love to all people and Wesley said I will stop if you show me an area of England that has greater need than yours Wesley continued to preach and continued to be vile because he continued to go beyond the boundaries Our church understands this living faith of the dead. Twenty years ago, when we decided to become a reconciling church, we were very much within Wesley's understanding of becoming more vile because we would go beyond the rules and beyond the boundaries to spread God's love. When Colleen and I decided to begin doing same-gender marriages here, we had decided to become more vile in our tradition by going beyond the regulations and the boundaries. Every year at annual conference, a friend and I uh, get together at a restaurant in Marblehead and, um, for, for supper. It's a time we look forward to, uh, to get caught up on family, to get caught up on our churches, and get up, caught up on our personal lives. And we like the restaurant. It's um, good perch, uh, good service, friendly service, good atmosphere, nice deck on which you can eat outside. So this year on Tuesday night, we went out to this restaurant and we got out of our car in their parking lot and oh my God, the stink. It stank so bad. You know, I looked around, where's their dumpster? What did they put in their dumpster? It was one of those stinks where it gets into your hair, if you have hair. It gets into your clothes, you know, you get back in your car and your car smells. It just is a stink that stays with you. And, and, and she said to me, do you, do you want to go in? And I said, you know, is there an animal that's rotting in the woods around here? It just stank everywhere. And I thought, well, you know, we like their food. We like their service. We like the atmosphere. Let's go in. And we went in, and it stank a little bit in there. And we persevered. And uh, we asked for a table outside. And we went outside, 
And we found this little pocket of freshness. Just this little pocket on, you know, a table for four. And we said, we think we could eat here. And the, and the hostess said, you know, fine. And she gave us the menu, yada, yada, yada. So we sat there, and we watched other cars pull into the parking lot. And we'd watch the people get out of their car and go, and get back in their car and drive away. But there were some people that also persevered because they saw us sitting there. And they, they went into the restaurant and they came out on the porch and we knew some of the people from annual conference and they said, what's it like out here? Do you smell it out here? And we said, well, we found this little pocket. And they, and they looked at each other and said, well, why don't we try over here and see if it works for us? And pretty soon... The, the deck was full of people eating. And as, as we left the restaurant, I thought, we like this restaurant for the food, the service, the atmosphere, but there was this overall stink that was just driving people away. And I thought, you know, that's kind of analogous to the United Methodist Church's situation now. There is so much good to say about the United Methodist Church. Good food, good service, good atmosphere. But there's this overall stink that drives people away. They get out of their car and they smell it and they get back in and drive away. I would call that stink traditionalism. Where we're more concerned about our rules and our regulations, we're more concerned about who's in and who's out and how they're in and how they should behave, we're more concerned about our survival. We're more concerned about the church as an ends rather than a means. It just stinks. I worry some about our church falling into the trap of traditionalism, of thinking of turning inward and thinking only about ourselves and our survival where we're just an ends and not a means where we kind of start to worship ourselves we need to be aware of our tradition our tradition which is to be more vile, which ironically means to be a pocket of freshness. Certainly, we've been a pocket of freshness for LGBT persons who get out of their car and come in here and it doesn't stink and they invite their friends. 
gay and straight, to come in and find other pockets of freshness. But we can't limit our pockets of freshness anymore to LGBT. We need to go beyond that and create other pockets of freshness for other peoples and other causes. Two weeks ago, Colleen spoke so strongly about care for the earth. In many ways, our treatment of the earth stinks. We need to become a pocket of freshness. Particularly in urban areas, how does one live and care for the earth in an urban area? We need to be a pocket of freshness for immigration. Both parties acknowledge that there's a crisis at the border. How are we expanding a pocket of freshness? Education. I just don't recall that it was talked about in the democratic debate, but how important is the education of our children? We need to be a pocket of, there are so many areas where we need to be that pocket of freshmen where people will come in and find that table where they can sit. Our calling is clearly not to be traditionalists. Our calling is to honor our tradition by becoming more vile, going beyond the boundaries of the rules and the regulations to take God's love to all people, that that freshness spreads beyond our walls. May it be so. Amen.